relationship with you, Father. We praise your name for that. Father, we also praise you for your word. And you teach us through your scriptures. Father, I pray that uh, you'd speak to us this morning as we look at your scripture, Father. I pray that you speak through me that my lips will be your lips, my heart will be your heart, Father. And as we look at the passage this morning, Father, dwell on it, Father, that we will not just be hearers of the word, but we will be doers of it as well. Father, thank you for today. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you here. We, uh, as Pastor Barry already alluded to, uh, this is the Prodigal God series, and this is really the last uh, of these, uh, the sermons uh, for this series. We've been looking through this for the past uh, about five weeks. This is the six weeks of this series. And uh, we've been talking a lot about sin and hope and grace. And the question that really remains as we kind of bring this whole series to a close is, what do we do with that? Many of us have maybe have made commitments to Christ or who, who have, uh, during this series, who have given our lives to Christ or, or maybe are more, more recently. And the question is, what do we do with that? How do we carry out that in our lives? How do we carry out uh, what Jesus taught us and saved us from? In other words, if we believe the gospel, if we believe all these things about hope and faith and grace, if we received a new identity, what's next? Well, if you have your service sheets and Bibles, you know that we, we're in Luke uh, 15, as we already read that passage this morning. We already read that passage this morning. And one of the things that we see that the father did for the son is after he came back to him, he, he, he ran out to him. It says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the robe, it says in verse 22. And put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You know, it's interesting that in this story that it ends with a feast. Throughout the scriptures, really, Jesus talks about the end of, uh, talks about salvation as a feast. The end of history, the end of time in Revelation 19, he talks about it as a feast. He also talks about it in Isaiah. He talks about it in Matthew, verse, chapter 8, verse 11. Where it says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. And will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's a feast. Today we, it's, it's fitting as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that we come together and celebrate a feast. As a sign of his saving grace. The question is why? Why does Jesus end this parable this way? Why does he talk about throughout the scriptures about salvation as a feast? The question is, the answer is, is that there's really no better way to convey how to live out our salvation, how to live out the work that he did on the cross, how to live out this life of being a Christian. There's no better way to convey that than through a feast. Why? Because a feast says all kinds of things, doesn't it? There's all kinds of reasons that we have feasts. We, we come together why, to eat because why? We need food. It's, it meets our physical need. We also, we also have feasts to, to what, have celebrations together, to, to, to worship with one another, to come into community with each other. We also have feasts because, and we prepare for the food because we want to make good food. That's why it's wonderful when we have the chili cook-off next week. We, we're, we're coming together. You know, it's interesting as a staff, we've been really kind of pushing the fact that this isn't really necessarily about a chili cook-off, but it's more about the speaker Wade Nolan coming. But it always went back to the chili. Why? Because it's a food. Everything gathers around food. 
And we need to eat, so might as well come together. And it's a time that we can have fellowship with one another. So it, when talking about a feast of the prodigal God's story, as, this, as we've already looked at, there's no better way to convey what, how to live out this life of salvation than, than a feast. Than a feast. And there really are four ways to experience a feast that corresponds to the way that we live our lives that are, are shaped by Jesus' gospel message. Four ways. That we live out this life of hope, faith, and grace as it relates to a feast. The first one, when we, when we think of a feast, we think of a feast, and we think of salvation, we understand that salvation is experiential. Salvation is experiential. You know, one of the things is, is about a feast is that it really delights our appetites, our sense of smell and tastes are filled up. And so there's always a lot of time as we cook our food. I know next week my wife is one of the chili cookers, and there's a lot of prep time. I know she wanted to make chili last week to, to prepare, to see if she got the recipe right. Why? Because, because there's a lot of things that go into it. We don't just eat to eat. We experience the food. And salvation very much is the same thing. We have to experience it. We experience it. It's just not something we, we, we read about in the scriptures. We actually can experience that salvation. You know, it's interesting when you think about Jesus' first miracle. Jesus' first miracle was where? Was that a feast? It was at a wedding. It was at a wedding where he turned water into wine. Very first miracle. And John says that it was a sign. Actually, in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. The first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And the disciples put their faith in him. Why? Because Jesus really is the true master of the ceremony, isn't he? He took our place. He secures the legal verdict of not guilty for us, so we're no longer viable for our wrongdoings. However, salvation isn't just objective and legal. It's not something we just know. It's something that is subjective and experiential as well. That's why the Bible talks throughout the Word about that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. Not only believe in it, we've got to feel it and believe it and act on it. That's why Jonathan Edwards once said, there's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense of heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having rational belief that honey is sweet and actually having a sense of its sweetness. So we don't need, just need to understand and read the word and say, understand that he, he is all powerful and that God is great. We need to feel that and believe it. We need to recognize it when it comes. So, for example, if you're, if you're filled with guilt and shame, as, as some of us are in this room, we don't just read his word of his mercy. We actually feel his mercy. We can be set free from that. Some of us are filled with worry and anxiety. Maybe it's over certain things in life, or our family situation, or our finances, or a big decision that we make. There, we don't just have this, this abstract concept that God's in control. We read it, we understand it, we feel it, and we act on it as well. And we have a peace in our life. We recognize His majesty. This is often difficult for many of us, isn't it? Because we often pray to Him of, of things that we feel that we really want. Yet He's giving us everything that we need. We need to recognize it and be thankful. So, salvation is experiential. When we read his word, this isn't just words on a page. This is something real to us as we live out our life, just like a feast is real to us. 
The second thing that salvation is as it relates to a feast is material. Salvation is material. A meal is a very real, physical experience. We have to eat. Jesus left a meal at the Lord's Supper, as we're going to be celebrating here, to go on to his death and to be raised again in bodily form three days later. You know, it's interesting about when it comes to the material things, we have to understand that the material things really do matter to Jesus, don't they? Some of us live in a world where we think, well, the material, that'll just fade away and eventually we'll be in heaven. So the material doesn't matter to Jesus. It absolutely matters to Jesus. That's why Genesis said when he made the world, he looked at it and said it was good. And the fact of Jesus' resurrection, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, says he still cares about it. So we don't just go through our lives as these, these narratives that kind of get thrown away at the end of history. What happens here on earth matters to God. The ultimate purpose of, of Jesus was not only to save us, but to renew the world of disease and poverty and justice, of violence, of suffering and death. God made the world. It's now stained and broken. He's going to fix it. If, if the material didn't matter to God, if what happens on earth didn't matter to God, think about it this way, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised in bodily form, would he? He would have just been raised in spirit. But no, he was raised in bodily form. So what happens here on earth matters to God. That should give us so much hope. Things that we're dealing with in life, whether it's sickness, or maybe it's decisions we make, or things going on in our life, matters to God. It matters to God. Everything about Jesus' ministry really demonstrated that too, wasn't it? He, he went around, he healed the sick. He fed the hungry, he cared for the poor. Things matter to God, and they should matter to us. That's why Matthew 25 talks about it being a material thing that, that matters to Christ, should matter to us as well. It says in Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, The king, then the king, will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king replied, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of those of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So at the end of time, many people are going to stand up and call him Lord. But Jesus said that if they, if they aren't serving others, feeding the hungry, helping the sick, the prisoner, then they haven't really been serving him. There's no contradiction in the prodigal son's story as we see here. The younger brother is too selfish to care for the poor, as we've already talked about in the past few weeks. The older brother is too self-righteous to care for the poor. Things here on earth, material things, matter to God. That's why Keller said in his book, Christianity is perhaps one of the most materialistic of the world's faith. Jesus' miracles on earth were not so much as violations of the natural order, but a restoration of natural order. God didn't create a world of blindness and leprosy and hunger and death. Jesus' miracles were signs that someday these corruptions of the creation would soon be abolished. See, Jesus hates these things of injustices. And he came to wipe them out and make things new. And as Christians, we can't be passive about these things. 
That's why there was, with Karl Marx, many of you knew Karl Marx, who was very anti-religion, anti-Christianity. He called it the opiate of the masses. He said that Christianity is, is a sedative that makes people passive towards injustice because there'll be, what, a pie in the sky by and by. So what he's saying is that we as Christians will say, well, you know, what happens here on earth doesn't really matter. Everything's going to go away anyway. So it makes us, it's like a sedative, makes us not care. But it's totally the opposite. Because Jesus cared for these things, so should we. So should we. We need to get involved and fight against those things. That's why I love what we do here at the church in the pastoral care department. Pastor Barry runs that department with Elizabeth and Helen, and there's ministry after ministry reaching out to those that are hurting, the lost, the sick, constantly doing things for them, ministering to them. We have a a fund that we have, a good Sam fund, where we help out financially with people. We have people visiting people in the hospital. We also have missions that we support Urban impact, young lives. All these things that we have here at the church, we get behind. Why? Because it's important to God, so it must be important to us. So the question is for you is, now that you understand the hope and faith and grace, what do you need to do about it? We need to get involved with these things. Because salvation is very much material. The third thing that salvation is, as it relates to a feast, is individual. Salvation is individual. See, a meal fuels growth. We need to eat regularly. Some of us eat more often than others. But we need to eat regularly. Why? Because we need food. That's why we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every once a month. Because it's a good reminder of what we're doing. Not because of tradition, but because we need to. We need to be in the Word. We need to keep feeding ourselves. Some of us feel like once we make a commitment to Christ, that that's it. That now that I've made that commitment to Christ, I don't have to do anything more. And it can't be further from the truth. We need to be in our word daily. We need to be with others in fellowship. We need to be studying. We need to be praying to him. That's why when Luther talked about religion, he said it was a default mode of the human heart. Just like a computer. Not like they had computers back then. But you understand the computer is, goes automatically in default mode. Unless you tell it to do something else. And Luther was saying the same thing. Is that even after you're converted by the gospel, your heart will automatically go back to other principles unless you deliberately tell it to do otherwise. That's why the verse uh, in the Bible that the flesh is contrary to the spirit and the spirit is contrary to the flesh. Because our flesh wants to do certain things. Our flesh will naturally go a certain way. And the spirit wants us to go somewhere else. So you may be saying, well, what's your point? The point is, is that we can't merely change things through, through willpower alone. Through simply understanding who God is and then just forcing our wills to change to that. We must feed on him the gospel as we digest it and make it grow in our life. That's why we offer Bible studies and regular teachings here at the church. So we can digest it and grow. grow. Because we can't just bend our wills to change that. You may say, well, how does that look? What does that look like? Let me give you an example. Maybe, maybe you're in here as one example and you want to be more generous with your money. This will not happen by putting more pressure on your will to do so. Instead, we have to reflect on things that are holding us back. For many of us, money means approval and respect. We put our hope and trust in that. So in order to give more, we have to understand or be more generous with our money. What does our heart condition look like? That's how we change. So we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 
2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So what's Paul do when talking about giving? He takes it back to the Gospels. He says, think of this costly grace until you want to give more like Christ did. Does it make you feel guilty? Maybe you're in here, maybe it's a marriage thing. Maybe, maybe you want to have a better marriage. Maybe a lot of folks in our church struggling with marriage. Maybe you want to have a better marriage. It's not about bending your will to have a better marriage. What does the, the, the scripture say? Paul takes us back to, to Christ in Ephesians. He says, husband, love your wives, what? As Christ loved the church. It all goes back to him. The solution to a bad marriage is, is a reorientation to the radical love that Christ gave us. So what's your point, Jared? My point is, is that if you want to be more faithful or generous or anything, it's not just about a redoubled effort of moral, following moral rules. Rather, it's about deepening our understanding of salvation and living out the changes that creates in our hearts. Why, when Pastor Barry and I uh, do counseling for uh, various folks in our church, it's about the heart issue we always talk about. People always have conditions and issues that they are dealing with, but it always goes back to the heart. Why? Because we could change the behavior, but if we're never going to change the heart, you're just going to go back to that in a few weeks anyway. It's about changing the heart. That's why I love the parable of the sower. If you remember the farmer in the parable of the sower, and he's throwing seeds out and falls on different soils. Only one soil it worked on. As it says in Matthew 13, 23. It says, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. The one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Why? Because it's internalized. If you start from the heart out, then everything changes outside. Your actions change. So salvation is definitely individual. Salvation is material. Salvation is individual. But there's one more thing that a feast conveys. A feast at the end of the prodigal son story. A feast conveys the same thing that salvation does. Is that salvation is fourthly communal. Communal. I don't know of a feast of one. No one's ever heard of that. Where someone makes all this food, well, people have heard of that, and you just eat it all. Okay? That's a different issue. We could talk about that at a different point. But a feast is what? It, it gathers people around. There's people at a feast. They come together as a celebration time. There's multiple people. When you think of a feast, you think of multiple people at the feast. This, this story would be entirely different. If the son came back to the father and the father said, let me just give you something to eat. He didn't say that. He said, no, let's celebrate and have a feast. Let's gather other people around you. Why? Because salvation is communal. Salvation is communal. So many of us want to not be in church because maybe you've been in churches, been hurt by others like an elder brothers who are self too self-righteous and look down on others. And let me just say, I'm sorry if you've ever been in a church that felt that way, where people look down on you because you weren't good enough to be in the church. Here at the church, we want to say, our church, we want you to come in. We're not going to look down on you because of your past situation. We're happy that you're here. We want you to be a body with us, and we want to grow together. 
We want to grow together. That's why we have so many ministries and Bible studies we encourage you to get part of because there's accountability there. There's growth there because a feast doesn't happen alone and neither does the work of your salvation carried out in life. It doesn't happen alone. It happens in community. In community. Once we are a part of a community of believers, we seek to resemble, serve, and love Jesus. We will never go, get to know him better and grow into his likeness without others. That's why I love the passage in Hebrews 10. It says, don't let us give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more day as you see, all the, all the more as you see the day approaching. It's about meeting together and encouraging one another because we go through life. Salvation, how we carry that out is very much like a feast. It's communal. Do it together. As we sum up this prodigal God story, it's been a series. It's been a wonderful series. We talked about various aspects. Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven, is what he says. As we've looked through this series over the past six weeks, we realize that the sensual way of the younger brother and the ethical way of the elder brother are, are really spiritual dead ends, aren't they? But there's another way through him. And we, when we enter that life on salvation, we will, it'll bring us to a final feast where we can celebrate. But we can have a foretaste of that here on earth now. As we experience salvation experientially. As we experience it physically, materially. As, we've, as, we've, as we sense it individually as a part of who we are. And as we, as we do it as together, community, in community with a body of believers we do this through prayer, service to other, and changes in our inner nature through the gospel and through healed relationships that Christ can give us now. And it's really a foretaste of what is to come. As we close the services, Isaiah's prediction, as I talked about in the beginning of this, of this service, of a future feast, of a time to celebrate, which comes in Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. What joy there is to know that we're going to be brought into a feast someday. What joy there is to know that we can celebrate that here and have a foretaste of that here on earth together. And as we come to the Lord's table, that we can do this together as a reminder of what he did on the cross for us. And we can do it. We can take it, have a physical presence. We can experience it. We can do it as an individual. But we can also do it in community with a body of other believers. So let me pray for us as we come to the communion table this morning. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the fact that, for your word. We thank you for the fact of feasts and that we can celebrate with you sometime in the future, Father. But we can have a foretaste of those things here now, Father. Father, I pray that we, as we look at our salvation, how we carried out the work that you did for us on the cross, that you help us realize that we can, it is a material thing that we can experience, Father. That it's an individual thing that we need to do it regularly, Father, and seek your will. Read your word. Be praying to you and seek your discerning spirit as we go throughout life, Father. And help us to be able to do it together, encouraging one another in community. Father, I pray that you bless our time now as we come to your table. Remember what you did for us on the cross. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.